If humanity, the crowning of creation and its ultimate purpose, is not necessarily good, if sin is possible and even likely, if human life is therefore full of disappointments, then how can creation conclude before the Sabbath with the sentence that God saw all that he had made and it was very good? Welcome to Bible 365, episode 49, An Imperfect Game in an Imperfect World. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Let me take you back to 2010, to a baseball game whose theological significance should be of interest to us. Peggy Noonan, in a wonderful piece, describes the scene. Comerica Park in Detroit, the Tigers versus the Cleveland Indians, and on the mound is Tigers pitcher Armando Galarraga, 28. In his brief major league career, he has not pitched a complete game, never mind a perfect one, but here he is. He's retired 26 straight batters. It's two outs in the ninth, with just one to go, one out between him and history. Indians shortstop Jason Donald is at the plate. Donald hits a grounder between first and second. Miguel Cabrera, the Tigers' first baseman, fields it as Galarraga sprints to first. The pitcher takes the throw from Cabrera and steps on the base. Donald crosses it just a step later. Galarraga gets this look of joy, and the umpire blows it. He calls Donald safe. Everyone is shocked. End quote. Thus, a perfect game was ruined. Or was it? Could it be that what occurred in the face of this imperfection was actually more perfect, and that this in turn tells us something profound about the nature of life? In chapter 28, we encounter the diverse offerings that were brought on behalf of Israel, and which change depending on the moment in time. We have, in other words, the temple rituals that reflect the cycles of the Jewish calendar. Let us focus carefully on the offering that is brought twice a day, every day, known as the Korban Tamid, or if you will, the offering of constancy. Chapter 28. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel and say unto them, My offering of food offered unto the fire, of a sweet savor unto me, shall ye observe to offer unto me in its due season. And thou shalt say unto them, This is the offering made by fire which ye shall bring unto the Lord, male lambs of the first year without blemish, two every day, for a continual burnt offering. The one lamb shalt thou offer in the morning, and the other lamb shalt thou offer at dusk. And the tenth part of an ephah of fine flour for a meal offering mingled with the fourth part of a hin of beaten oil. One lamb in the morning, and one before evening every day. That is the tamid, offered daily. But the Torah goes on to tell us that on the Sabbath, another offering, known traditionally as musaf, or addition, is added in honor of the day. Verse 9. And on the Sabbath day, two male lambs of the first year without blemish, and two-tenth parts of an ephah of fine flour for a meal offering, mingled with oil, and the wine offering thereof. If you do the math, you will note a fact pointed out by the great medieval Sephardic sage, or by Shalomo ben Aderet, also called Rashba, that the offering of the Sabbath is double that of the daily offering. Two lambs daily, on Shabbat, another two. This links to a larger theme of doubling in honor of the Sabbath. Israel in the desert received twice as much manna every Friday in advance of the Sabbath. Jews remember this today, every week, in blessing several times over two loaves of bread. There are even rabbis who suggest that we should mark this theme during smaller Sabbath meals, such that if one is planning to eat cake at, say, a synagogue collation, that it is better to take and bless 
two pieces of cake rather than one. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a sacrifice for Judaism that I am willing to make. The doubling in honor of the Sabbath, perhaps, is meant to highlight the munificence of God, for it is on the Sabbath that we recall creation and what was written in Genesis as the beginning of the seventh day arrived. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Thus, Sabbath, through the additional offering, the Musaf, marks the goodness of God and the goodness of what God made. And yet, we know that the creation of God, this earthly existence, is not perfect, and that the humanity that God made is capable of profound imperfection. We can see this from the sixth day of creation, for Genesis does not conclude with the usual mantra, Vayar Lukim Kitov, that the Almighty saw that it was very good. Because on the sixth day, humanity was created, and the phrase that it was good is inappropriate, because we are free and not necessarily good. But if humanity, the crowning of creation and its ultimate purpose, is not necessarily good, if sin is possible and even likely, if human life is therefore full of disappointments, then how can creation conclude before the Sabbath with the sentence that God saw all that he had made and it was very good? The answer, perhaps, is that it is precisely the imperfection in man and creation that in the end allows for certain forms of goodness that would not exist in a perfect world. Or, as I've quoted before from Yogi Berra, one of the 20th century's greatest theologians who also knew something about baseball, if the world was perfect, it wouldn't be. In other words, in a world without sin and failure, there would be no opportunity for repentance, grace, and forgiveness. In a world without capacity for wrongdoing, there would be little heroism. It is the imperfection of the world that allows for certain embodiments of moral greatness to come to the fore. This, in turn, brings us to the next series of offerings, which is brought in celebration of Rosh Chodesh, the new moon, the beginning of the monthly cycle that is at the heart of the Jewish lunar calendar. The reappearance of the new moon in the darkness of night is taken by Jews as a symbol of renewal, and since biblical times, it has been marked as a joyous day. A number of offerings are brought for the new moon, Rosh Chodesh, but surprisingly, the last of all is the following. Verse 15, And one male goat for a chatat offering unto the Lord, it shall be offered beside the continual burnt offering and the drink offering thereof. A chatat, or purification offering, is usually brought to atone for sin. Why would a marking of sin in the world, or at least impurity in the world, honor the day of the new moon? Perhaps because, at that moment, we are meant to reflect on the goodness that can emerge in the face of imperfection. Let us, ladies and gentlemen, ponder the aesthetic experiences of the onset of Shabbat on the one hand, and the new moon on the other. The Sabbath begins with the glorious sunset, when we feel the goodness of God's creation. But the light of the new moon is seen amidst profound darkness. The darkness is a reminder of the incredibly profound imperfections in existence. But the light of the new moon is seen more prominently precisely because of this very same darkness. And Jews see in that small light symbol of the profound capacity of human beings to serve as a moral beacon in the face of imperfection. Thus, on the Sabbath, when our focus is on the goodness of creation, there is no chatat offering. But on Rosh Chodesh, the beginning of the month, 
the new moon, we celebrate something else. The fact that in an imperfect world, the Almighty relies on us to serve as his partners in the creation of further goodness. Or, in Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik's words, we mark at the moment of the new moon how, quote, the creator of the world diminished the image and stature of creation in order to leave something for man, the work of his hands, to do, in order to adorn man with the crown of creator, end quote. Thus does the imperfect game in Detroit serve as a metaphor for our theme of goodness in the face of imperfection. When Armando Galarraga's perfect game was ruined by the umpire Jim Joyce, one could have imagined the anger that might have erupted. But as Peggy Noonan noted in her article in the Wall Street Journal, quote, when Galarraga hears the call, he looks surprised, but he's composed and he smiles, as if accepting fate. Jim Joyce left the field, watches the videotape, saw that he'd made a mistake, and went straight to the clubhouse where he personally apologized to Galarraga. Then he told the press, I just cost the kid a perfect game. After Joyce apologized, Galarraga said, you don't see an umpire after the game come out and say, hey, I'm sorry. He felt really bad. And Noonan continues, what was sweet and surprising was that all the principals in the story comported themselves as fully formed adults with patience, grace, and dignity. And in doing so, Galarraga and Joyce showed kids how to do it. A lot of adults don't teach kids this now because the adults themselves don't know how to do it. There's a mentoring gap, an instruction gap in our country. We don't put forward a template because we don't know the template. So everyone imitates TV, where victors dance in the end zone, where winners shoot their arms in the air and distort their face and yell, woo and where victims of an injustice scream, cry, say bitter things, and beat the ground with their fists. Everyone has come to believe this is authentic. It is, writes Noonan, authentically babyish. Everyone thinks it's honest. It's honestly undignified, self-indulgent, weak, and embarrassing. Galarraga and Joyce, continues Noonan, couldn't have known it when they went to work Wednesday, but they were going to show children in an unforgettable way that a victim of injustice can react with compassion, and a person who makes a mistake can admit and declare it, end quote. Thus does an imperfect game allow for the instantiation of greater moral perfection. Thus does an umpire's ruling that was less than good allow for the exhibition of human behavior that is very good. This passage in the book of Numbers that we are studying provides us with the Torah reading for Rosh Chodesh, for the day every month when we mark the new moon. On that day, we read first of the daily offering, next of the Sabbath offering, and then the new moon offering, concluding with the final verse of the Chatat of Rosh Chodesh, reading in great joy of the purification offering that must be brought on that day. Thus does a few small sentences capture the worldview of Judaism. The reading begins with a single lamb offered every morning and a single one every afternoon, the one animal embodying the unity of the people of Israel. Yet the two special offerings that follow, that of the Sabbath and that of the new moon, reflect the two different ways that Jews see the world, two different ways that are taken in tandem. An exquisite essay by the 19th century rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch recounts his setting off on an overseas journey, missing his loved ones, but sustained by the fact, as the ship departs, that he has brought books with him to study. Hirsch, according to this essay, descended to his cabin and discovered to his dismay that his cousin who had packed his bag had, perhaps in a typical Jewish oversight, chosen to fill Rabbi Hirsch's traveling trunk 
with the only thing that a Jew might, at his lesser moments, cherish more than books. Snacks. Everybody likes snacks. But Rabbi Hirsch, he writes, was profoundly saddened by the loss of what he called his spiritual nourishment. But one book, Rabbi Hirsch tells us, had made it on board with him. The Luach, the small printed calendar of the Jewish year, which, before the internet age, was the essential resource for a rabbi. Rabbi Hirsch, according to the essay, resolved that he would take this tiny calendar and study it while he traveled, glean in its details the deeper truths of Jewish thought. Quote, Be my friend, I said to the little one. They have all left me and only you are at my side. I will slowly peruse your leaves and you will help me recreate memories and emotions, dreams and fantasies as I reflect on the past and the link to the future. End quote. It is a lovely story. Introduced perhaps as a literal story or as a literary parable. And its spiritual insight is profound. Rightly understood, the Jewish calendar is indeed our friend. It represents the heart and the soul of the Jew. This soul, this calendar, oscillates between two poles, Shabbat and the new moon, but the two enhance each other. We believe God's goodness is reflected in creation, and we mark this through the weekly Sabbath. But on the day of the new moon, we understand the imperfections of this world and reflect on the fact that Jews throughout history have faced so many trials because of the imperfections of this world. And yet, thinking of the small sliver of radiant light in the midst of the darkness, Jews also rejoice in the knowledge of all the good that God is relying upon us to perform. The concept that emerges from the calendar allows us to learn further lessons from our previous subject, the tale of Balak, king of Moab, enemy of Israel. The word Moab is a derivative of Me'av, which means from father, as Moabites descend from the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. So the nation's very name connotes sin. Yet readers of the Bible know, spoiler alert, ladies and gentlemen, that a Moabite by the name of Ruth will become the matriarch of the monarchy of Israel. Thus, the Davidic Messiah that the prophets promise will redeem the Jewish people will owe his existence in part to Moab, a people that owes its origins to a sinful act, a people that, in the Bible, is Israel's enemy. This is what I call the scandalous genealogy of the Jewish Messiah. But the poetry, perhaps, is profound. It is through imperfection that salvation will emerge. It is precisely an imperfect world that will allow us to become worthy through moral heroism of the world's redemption. It is precisely our own moral failings that could be overcome. It is precisely a world sunken sin that will ultimately allow us to illustrate a repentance worthy of celebration and of salvation. The imperfect genealogy of the Davidic Messiah teaches us that human perfection lies not in our own infallibility, but in the way that we respond to life's challenges and in how we own up to our failings and summon the courage to do better. When pitcher Milt Pappas pitched for the Cubs in 1972, he came close to a perfect game until the umpire, Bruce Froeming, called a walk in the eighth inning. According to what I've read, Pappas yelled at Froeming and said something like, you could have gone down in history as someone who umped a perfect game. And Froeming himself is supposed to have replied, Can you tell me who was the umpire at any of the other perfect games? He has a point. Few remember any of the umpires or even the pitchers of perfect games. The only perfect game everybody remembers is memorialized in a sculpture in the new Yankee Stadium, which depicts Don Larson after pitching a perfect World Series game, leaping into the embrace of his Yankee catcher, a catcher that, as many of you know, 
also happened to be one of the great theologians of the 20th century. But we can remember this specific game that we have been discussing. Not only the pitcher, but also the umpire. Not so much for the game itself, but for how it can teach us that imperfection can serve as an impetus for moral greatness. Peggy Noonan describes how on the next day, when the two teams played again, quote, Armando Galarraga got a standing ovation. In a small masterpiece of public relations, Detroit's own General Motors gave him a brand new red Corvette. Galarraga brought out the lineup card and gave it to the umpire, Jim Joyce, who had been offered the day off but chose to work. Fans came with signs that said, it was perfect. It was. End quote. The Jewish calendar bespeaks a holy good God who gave us an imperfect world, which in turn allows for the precious perfection of the heroic goodness that often matters most. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.